0: We are in the, in the uh, Re- book of Revelation, chapter 2, and here is the little backstory. Uh, obviously, Revelation is a book of prophecy, but it's not all prophecy. There are some things that are, uh, uh, the first three chapters, for example, are not prophecy. Um, and so we are in chapter 2, which is chapters 2 and 3 are the seven letters to the seven churches. It's interesting that you know that Paul wrote a bunch of the letters, Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and many others, and Jesus wrote seven letters. Paul wrote to seven churches. Jesus wrote to seven churches. So John, the apostle, is on the island of Patmos. He's the only apostle left. The others have all been martyred. He's there, sort of an island prison, and he's getting amazing visions from God, and that is the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is actually the revelation of the apocalypsis of the apocalypse of the revealing of Jesus Christ. You say, well, we know him from the Gospels, and we do. But this is a much glorified, much more powerful, amazing uh, Jesus that we see here, uh, and especially in chapter one, but all through the book. Um, Let's see. And so we've got these seven letters, and they're to seven literal churches back in that time, all in what is now Turkey. It was Asia Minor, and they're all uh, fairly close together. Um, and so the question is: Well, so why is why are we reading somebody else's mail? And the answer is: the The advice Jesus gives to the churches is. Relevant for everybody here, both individually, we're to look at our at each letter to the church and ask, is this me? And then to each church, regardless of where it is, whether it's in Turkey or not. Anyway, let's uh, pick it up in chapter two. We're gonna pick it up in verse three, but I'm gonna read one and two just so you get the flavor where we are. So I know that you're awake. Say amen." amen. Good one. Um You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I'm going to read the whole letter and then we'll back up. Yet, verse 4, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first or your first love. Consider, verse 5, how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's the letter. All seven letters are brief. Most of the letters have something that the pre- God, Christ is praising the church for, and some advice about. But these things I don't like. Ken, do you have a question? When was Timothy involved with all this? Timothy was the pastor at the church in Ephesus, so this letter probably isn't written to him because Timothy was the pastor back in sixty in the sixties A.D maybe even into the 70s this is 95 ad it's possibly still there uh i don't know um each of the letters has a promise for the future each of the letters has uh, except one has something good to say about the church um let's see a, a good thing is that we learn who's who in verse 17 um let's see, no, verse 19 of chapter 1. I want you to read that with me. Chapter 1, verse 19, write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand. This is Jesus, the glorious Jesus, glorified Jesus, talking. He saw Jesus holding seven stars in his right hand, and he was standing amidst golden lampstands. So he defines these things at the end of that chapter. The seven stars are the angels, angelos, or messengers of the seven churches. We talked about the fact they can't be angels as in supernatural beings, like spirit beings, because he's writing a physical letter that's going to go to them. Um, So the, the Majority view by far is that these are the pastors, the head elders of these churches. That's who Jesus is holding in his hand, the seven messengers. Angel means messenger. And then the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Some people think that each church in the world fits at least one of these categories. I'll tell you, I believe that's true. And I even think that Christians fit at least one of these seven categories. So um, let's see. Uh, let's go back to verses uh, two and three. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. This is a church that is serious about doctrine. They check it out. There's a verse in Acts. We may look at it later. It's easy to remember. It's like 7-11, except it's 17. 11 acts 17 11 is the verse that tells you not to take anything i say as the truth or your pastor or anybody on christian radio or tv without checking it out with the word of god um the the bereans were considered more noble because they listened to paul's teaching and then they went to the scriptures to see if these things were true that's the standard of truth spiritually is the word of God. Somebody can say something that sounds so great. If it doesn't line up with scripture, you are to discard it. This church is so good at that. They can't tolerate wicked people. That's conduct. Somebody that's living in perpetual, habitual sin. We talked about that last week. And they've tested those who claim to be apostles. How did they test them? Blood test? No. They tested them by scripture and found them to be False. Uh, the compliments continue. Verse three, you've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. What does that mean? In that part of the world, if you professed to be a Christian and you had a business, you could lose business. People wouldn't do business with you. There was great persecution of Christians. So um, let's see. So let's look at verse three again. Uh, Endured hardships and not grown weary. The people they were testing regarding apostleship, you know that there's, we said this last week, but by review, there's 11 apostles, right? Plus Judas, we're subtracting him. So there's 11. You add Matthias in the book of Acts, you add Paul in the book of Acts, now that's 13. Those are the apostles, I call it capital A, commissioned by Jesus. They saw the risen Christ. But there are a handful of others in the New Testament that are called apostles, small a, sent ones who aren't in the same category as Peter, James, John, Paul, etc. Um, let's see, besides them, people like James, Barnabas, the James is the brother of Jesus, Barnabas, Silas, Andronicus, Junius, they're called apostles as well in a little bit of a lesser sense. So it was a way of gaining great credibility in a church. I'm teaching and I'm, my name is Joe. So what? Oh, I'm an apostle. And people go, oh, we really have to listen to what this dude says. These people aren't impressed. Let's check them out. The teaching doesn't line up. We'll see how and why in a second. Um, so they didn't give up. They persevered. Um, they were persecuted because of being Christians. Um, Let's see. We already talked about that. Okay. Verse four. Yet, nevertheless, I have some things against you. I hold this against you. Verse four. You have forsaken your first love, the love you had at first. Okay. Now he doesn't really expound on that, right? You're wondering what, what is he talking about? But they've forsaken um, or uh, had left is literally what how it reads in Greek. They'd left their first love. I want you to notice they didn't lose it completely. They just left it behind in the dust somewhere. Um, so this is sobering and it's bad news. So whatever they were doing when they were early Christians and in a, a new church that involved love, they've kind of that's kind of grown cold. Now, you know that when Jesus is asked in the Gospels, what's the most, what's the main commandment, the greatest commandment? You remember he's asked? And he says there's two. Uh, and it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, vertical, love your neighbor as yourself. So which of those had grown cold? I would argue a little of both right? You can't really have one without the other growing cold. When they were new Christians, they were so they understood how much God had forgiven them and given them that they were so grateful. They did things with that key word coming up, motivation. We're going to come back to that word. Ditto for the way they treated other people around them, not only in their church, but unbelievers as well. They were much more loving. It's possible that that love has grown cold in favor of doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Nothing wrong with doctrine. Don't get me wrong. It's important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. But if it's just cold, legalistic doctrine, it's not great. Motivation. There are many things that motivate people to do things. Uh. There are all kinds of motivators. Someone could put a gun to my head and say, drive me to St. Louis. Am I motivated? Definitely. Do I want to go? No. Gun to my head, I'm driving to St. Louis, right? That's bad motivation, okay? Then there's positive reinforcement, reward. I'll give you a million dollars if you drive me to St. Louis when do we leave, dude, right? That's positive reinforcement. But I'm going to argue with you that the love is a greater motivator than positive reward, all that stuff, money. I'll give you a house if you do this for me. I'll shoot you if you don't do this, right? All kinds of motivators the greatest motivator the one that will melt your heart is the one where you realize how much god loved you when you didn't deserve it and you didn't really love him that will motivate you more than reward now don't get me wrong heaven is unbelievable reward right and some people think i'm going to become a christian just for fire insurance i don't want to go to hell i want to go to heaven i just want the reward just give me the reward And that's a motivator, but it's not the greatest motivator. Love is the greatest motivator. This church has lost that love somehow and gotten into very strict, cold, suspicious, legalistic religion. And they've forgotten their first love that motivated everything. Love will make you go the extra thousand miles, right? Um, just because you love someone, a couple that's been married many, many, many years never has the same thrill of that first six months, three months, one year, whatever, but there's a deeper, some of the married couples are looking at each other. There's a, and my wife is watching. I got to watch what I say. There's a deeper commitment and a deeper love that grows the longer, you know, someone. So we have to guard that love as well. Don't we? So, uh, Jesus is going right to the heart of the problem there. Did they lose their love and appreciation for Jesus and just become more mechanical in their faith? Let's look at it this way. You could build a church or work at the church or play music or do sermons or put up decorations for vacation Bible school and have a smile on your face because you're doing it out of love for Jesus as opposed to obligation, vacation Bible school again this year. Let's do it. It's hot in the sanctuary while we're decorating. Do you see what I mean? There's a whole different motivation of obligation and duty as opposed to, I love God so much, I want to do whatever he wants me to do. So he says to them, uh, the pers- that's the x-ray, if you will. That's the problem. You've forgotten your first love. Verse 5 consider how far you have fallen. Some translations have the word remember. That's really important that we remember what it was like at the beginning when we understood the gospel and how much he, Jesus Christ, has, God has done for us. There's nothing that you have or are that you weren't given right? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. James, we talked about that. So first thing is they got to remember, look back and repent. Okay. Now, repent is much more than just, I feel sorry. I I got caught. I feel guilty. That's part of it. But a repentance is a U-turn on the road of life where you're going that way and you go the other way. It's an immediate change of attitude that results in an immediate change in conduct, okay? That's what he's telling them to do. Keep in mind, this is all, we don't even think about this, but it's true. Where are the seven pastors of these churches? In Christ's hand. That's a pretty amazing thing. How well does he know him? Obviously pretty well. Where is he in the, in the vision, standing in the midst of all these candlesticks, candle um, stands, if you will, lampstands, he knows this church inside out, okay? You could say, well, he knows it supernaturally, he just knows it, but I, you get the feeling he's watching every church, everything that happens, including mine, including yours, Right? Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do, this is verse 5, do the things you did at first. So were there some things they used to do that they don't do anymore? Our love for Christ is expressed in obedience, but also in just worship and praise, right? Maybe they're Worship and praise has gone cold. We're not told. I purposely I think it's purposely a little vague, so that we'll look inward and go, What how was it for me when I was first a Christian? There was such a a joy. I remember an incredible relief, all the burden of all the guilt I had carried. I remember feeling like it, it can't all be gone, but it is. That's that's an incredible thing. As a result, you want to please the one that you love. The greatest motivator. Um, so repent and do the things you did at first. This is still verse five. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your, move your lampstand from its place. What's that? The church will no longer be a true church. Now, there may still be, if that happens, let's say they didn't repent. By the way, we have evidence historically they did. Uh, Writing in the first century. Um, We'll talk about that in a second. But my point is, if they didn't repent, then they would, their church would no longer be uh, a true church of God where he was involved. It would be, he'll remove the lampstand from where it is right with him. There could still be people going to the church. Let's face it. There are a lot of dead churches, right? For a variety of reasons, bad doctrine. They're a condoning sin. We're going to see them in these seven letters, but Jesus is warning them. I'll remove your lampstand. Um, it's early second century. Um, so that's 15, 20, 30 years later. Uh, one of the church fathers, Ignatius, writes and praises the love and the doctrinal purity of the Ephesian church. They got the message. This isn't somebody's opinion. This is Christ Jesus writing a letter to your church. Can you imagine if you're the pastor and somebody shows up and goes, John got this vision. Jesus has a message for you, pastor so-and-so. Who? The Jesus? Yes. Wouldn't you listen? All the more, he's got a lesson uh, and a message for you and me called the Bible, amen, and these churches. However, by the 11th century, many centuries later, the Ephesian church had passed out of existence. Eventually, new leaders came and went, and the the site where the city was of Ephesus, there's nothing there now. Nobody lives there. The whole city has moved uh, farther west, so a church that lo- loses its love, loses its light. They're doing things for all the wrong reasons. They might be doing the church, some of the pastors for money or for prestige or notoriety or some pastors just dwell on the numbers. You hear pastors talking, how many you have at your church? Uh, uh, 120. How about you? 450. How about you? Ten thousand. You know what? I'd rather be in a church of four that was biblical than a big, huge church with expensive stuff. Right. Um, OK, let's keep going because he's going to paint a picture a little more for this Ephesian church for us. And yes, it's the same Ephesian church, the book of Ephesus. That's kind of was the heart of Ken's question. Um, let's see verse. So it's a, a really a stark warning. I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Verse 6, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Did you hear that? Jesus hates. Oh, not my Jesus. My Jesus is the gentle puppy who loves everybody. Jesus hates. God hates. Oh, that's just so ugly. Hey, don't blame me. I didn't write the book. God hates Sin. God sees sin in a way you and I don't. He sees it as the incredible disease that has been the thing that has ruined life on planet Earth. I've told you the story before. We had new age people that we, Sherry and I, that we went out to dinner with at Tenaya Lodge, actually, many years ago. And I knew they weren't Christians. And we just started talking about the world. And, and I said, boy, that just seems like there's so many problems. I mean, it seems like more now. Amen. And we talked about, you know, murder and people stealing and ripping people off and, um, hatred and rape and unjust wars. And you could go on and on and on. And I said, you know, there's a Greek word for all that stuff. All those things we just mentioned one word. And I had their attention. I could see it. And it was, it's the word hamartia which is real fancy, and you know what it means? Sin. That's it. All that stuff I mentioned, you take away sin, none of that stuff would occur. None. It's the source of every problem there is on the earth. Let's face it, wars are unjust many times, and they're fought over money and territory and resources or control or power or egos or whatever. Sin, 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 sin. God sees sin as the unbelievable cancer that it is. No wonder he hates it. He hates it in the world at large, but he hates it, I think, more in a church when it shows up. So whoever these Nicolaitan dudes are, they must be pretty bad, right? Why? Because Jesus hates them, and he's commending the Ephesians for hating their doctrine as well. So we need to talk about who the heck are the Nicolaitans. And uh, they're also condemned in, in, uh, later on in this book. But in any case, uh, there was a guy named uh, Nick, Nicholas, okay, who was the f- one of the first of seven people that the old apostles had named as um, people that can start preaching and leading churches. And they probably did it incorrectly, or these guys were legit and they went off the rails in terms of doctrine. Um, okay. Uh, so what were they preaching? Nick, uh, again, uh, Irenaeus, second century, writes about them. And it's a combination of idolatry and immorality that go together okay? Sexual immorality, and yes, we can worship Jesus, but we should also try to get along with everybody and be relevant and worship Zeus or Apollos or the Roman uh, emperor. By the way, you're going to hear those words come up again and again at this time. Today, we don't worship emperors, right? We don't worship, I mean, maybe in some countries they want that, but we don't worship Trump, Obama, or Obama, uh, or Biden, or I said, oh, Biden, didn't I? Uh, we don't worship any of them necessarily. We certainly shouldn't. And we also don't worship all these Greek and Roman gods, Zeus, and you just don't see those temples, do you? But there's different idols today, but there are still idols. We'll come back to that. So the uh, Laos literally means to conquer the people. So these guys are very heavy-handed leaders who conquer the people by offering them a religion that is biblical-ish with the compromise of sexual immorality, which was rampant in the Roman Empire. Sexual immorality, historians of that era write that sexual immorality was so rampant. We think it's rampant now. It was so rampant then that the Christians were considered weird for being pure and not, I'm married to Louise here, and that's the only person, you know, for me kind of thing. It was very, very loose morals. It's part of what rotted the Roman Empire from the inside out. It's part of what's rotting the American Empire. the inside out but that's another story okay uh so god wants people to hate sin um jude 22 and 23 it says only one chapter uh we won't go there now but it's a verse that people quote that sort of agrees with the idea that you can hate the sin but love the sinner sin in a church that's being preached they especially hated it. It sounds like they kicked these guys out. The Nicolaitans were coming into the Ephesian church and could we preach on one's or one Bible study or something. And their doctrine was kind of starting to be accepted by son and these some, and these guys kicked them out for false doctrine. He, they hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and so does Jesus. Uh, and the practices. They also had the whole Gnosticism thing that First John writes a lot about. Gnosticism is, yes, Jesus, Bible, gospel, yeah, that's all good. But we, this separate group, the Nicolaitans, the Gnostics, whoever, we have the inside knowledge that most people don't have. You have to kind of join our group, and you get the inside scoop of what really is going on. Um, and the gospel is not that way, is it? The main things are the plain things. So, idolatry and immorality. Um, We already talked about that. Listen to the terms. I don't want to gross you out, but this is all right out of the Bible. Listen to the terms the Bible uses for sin in case you think, well, it's not that bad, right? Before I do that, there are some sins everybody would, most everybody would agree, murder, right? Right? The intentional killing of an innocent human being, yeah, that's bad, right? I think you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that says, well, it's not that bad. On the other hand, there are sins that some people would say, well, that doesn't harm anybody really, right? If the guy wants to cheat on his wife or the woman wants to cheat on her husband, and if if the guy steals from a major corporation that's got billions, and hey, come on, they can afford it. They have insurance for that. If a person wants to be uh, a a lesbian, that that doesn't really harm anybody. God doesn't make that distinction. He says sin is sin. And what you and I think is worse or better doesn't matter because the Bible is God's word. Amen. Okay. So the Bible describes sin as putrefying sores in Isaiah 1. It just defines sin as a heavy burden in Psalm 38, as defiling filth in Titus 1 and 2 Corinthians 7, a binding debt. It's called darkness in 1 John 1, and a scarlet stain in Isaiah 1. Listen, God hates sin. If you remember, go back to where does it begin? Garden of Eden. What happens as soon as Adam and Eve sin? Everything changes in their little world. They're going to eventually get kicked out of Eden, right? But immediately what happens, do you remember? They cover up. They hide. They cover up from each other, fig leaves. They hide from God, and God says, where are you? He knows, right? Like when your little kid's three years old, he's hiding behind the couch and thinks you can't see him. Where are you, Billy? And you know. He knows where they are. They're hiding from him. Sin has separated them from God. Sin has separated. Adam from Eve and vice versa. It's the worst thing on planet earth. Thank God, Christ has conquered it. Listen to Isaiah 59 2. But your iniquities, that's another word for sin, your sin has separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Very serious thing. We already talked about that. Sin always brings separation. Um so his love demands restoration and holiness. Remember the uh Romans 6 the wages of sin death. That's the reason there's death, sickness, disease, crime, everything that's bad in planet earth. Sin. No sin for Adam and Eve, we would all live forever, which is why I'm going to have a good time yelling at Adam and Eve when I get to heaven. Just kidding. Uh let's keep rolling. They hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Jesus hates them too. Verse 7, this phrase appears in every one of these books, and you can figure out why. We have already talked about it. Whoever has ears, or he that has ears to hear, King James, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's that sentence mean? That means don't think this is just for the Ephesian church in the first century in Turkey I live in California. I live in Detroit, wherever you live. He who has an ear, it's a way of saying, do you have an ear? Yes. Listen up. There's something here for you. Have we, you and I forgotten our first love? Are we condoning some evil practice or evil um, unbiblical teaching in a church or, uh, or other media, shall we say? What do you mean by that, Joe? Okay. At the risk of stepping on toes. Do you watch a television program regularly or movies that if Jesus came over, you'd go turn the TV off. Jesus is here. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? Um, Well, I, am not going to be part of that. I just, it's entertaining to watch. It's a popular show. I'm not going to name shows. I don't have to do that, but he that has an ear we're supposed to hear Notice this, what the Spirit says to the churches. Wait, I thought it was Jesus writing the letters. It is. How do you know that? Because he describes himself as, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars, verse one, and walks among, That's they're his words. The Spirit is delivering the message. Again, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God revealed in three persons. They don't disagree on anything, so there's no problem there. Let's read the rest of verse seven. To the one who is victorious or an overcomer same word i will give the right to each of the letters has one of these promises eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of god okay so what's going on here the tree of life uh restores the garden of eden eternal life total fellowship with god and what have you remember there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil which is just what the name sounds like. Once you have that knowledge, you're responsible for that knowledge. And when they sinned, they're out of luck. They're kicked out of Eden. First book of the Bible, Genesis. Last book of the Bible, Revelation. Eden is restored for those who have repented and believed the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, Yeah, we already talked about that. So the overcomers, the conquerors, the victorious, the ones with that lack of love who they find who find it again and maintain till the end persevere to the end there's great victory for them those christians are overcomers first john 5 calls all true christians overcomers that doesn't give you a reason to pat yourself on the back because the only reason we overcome is he's the great overcomer right in this world you'll have tribulation be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, the devil, all of it, death itself, right? So, uh, what's interesting is, yeah, let's turn there. Go to Revelation. It's easy to find. You're already in Revelation. Go to Revelation 15. I'll show you an interesting verse that you might not have noticed. Um, and it's Revelation 15. And what verse is it, Joe? I had it a second ago. I think it's verse. Well, no, I better not say. Um, There it is. Verse uh, chapter one, uh, chapter 15, sorry, verse one. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them, God's wrath is completed. We're moving way ahead in Revelation here. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire standing beside the sea. Those who had been, listen to this, those who had been what? Victorious overcomers, over the beast antichrist and his image and over the number of his name wow these people lived during the seven-year tribulation and they were overcomers they were victorious over the beast the antichrist and his image and over the number of his name remember the whole 666 thing in chapter 13 we'll get there in about 20 years but anyway they held harps given them by god may i say do you know who these people are They're victorious. They're overcomers. They're dead. What? They are. They're martyrs. These are martyrs. You say, I just don't think of a martyr as victorious. They died. Listen, when the Antichrist is saying, You either worship me or die, when you say, No way will I worship you or anything other than Jesus, go ahead, kill me, let the chips fall where they may. Might you end up dead? Yes. Will you certainly be a victorious believer? Absolutely. They overcame the beast by not letting him twist their arms into unbelief or compromise. It's a pretty amazing thing. We think of overcomers victorious as the winner of the Olympics, the guy that stands there with the national anthem playing. These guys died. You'll see this again in Revelation. Uh, And they're called victors, overcomers. Uh, pretty amazing. Same thing with Revelation 21, uh, seven, I believe. Let me just look at that real fast. 21.7, I think has it. I could be wrong, though. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But then the, verse 8, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, that's sorcery, idolaters and all liars their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur this is the second death that's going to come up shortly okay go back to chapter one uh, chapter two sorry are you still awake say amen. amen okay good that's a good good sound to hear um they conquered these people every satanic effort to sway them and make them compromise no way i'm not doing it now listen does that take courage Yes. Does that take strength of character and, and knowledge of what you believe and why? Yes. However, none of these people that did that did it on their own. None. Forget it. We will, uh, without the Holy Spirit, we would, 100% of us would compromise. The Holy Spirit will give the strength at that time to the extent that we submit to him. Let's keep rolling. Um, we talked about the tree. Uh, and the spirit. Um, the conqueror, one commentator wrote, is the victim of persecution whose death isn't loss. It's his victory. Pretty cool. We talked about the two trees. Okay, let's move to verse eight. So that's Ephesus. Uh, interesting church, some good, some bad. They'd grown a little cold, lost their first love. My, my take on it is that if they lost the love of God, uh, the, the love that they had for God and the appreciation for Christ, then I bet it showed not only that way in terms of their worship and praise, but it showed horizontally in the way they started treating other people. You know, Harold, um, Louise is sick and needs someone to. Uh, okay, instead of because he's given me so much, I'm happy to do it. That's the difference. Verse eight, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. Let's read the whole thing. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Each description of Jesus comes from chapter one, which we read last time. By the way, first and last is a name for God the Father in the Old Testament. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the God of the Old Testament, and he is. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. That tells you it's not the Father. Father never died and came to life again. It's Christ. Verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, and yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, verse 11. The one who is victorious or overcomer will not be hurt at all by the second death we just read about. Okay, let's go back to verse 9, verse 8, sorry, and take it apart. Let me tell you about Smyrna, first of all. Today in Turkey, Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R, same place. Uh, It kind of sounds similar. Uh, About 200,000 people live there. So Christ commends their endurance under persecution. Persecution is the devil's way of making life miserable for you and I, Because of Christianity, so that we will let go of Christianity in favor of personal comfort. Will you people please leave me alone if I just say I don't believe in Jesus? Yes, we will. Okay, here's my Bible. I won't go to church anymore. I don't believe anymore. Now leave me alone. Now you know what? If you're a true believer, you'd be miserable from then on until you come back, right? Um, Be fearless, be faithful to the end. The Ephesians need to return to the past. These guys need to keep on keeping on in the present, doing what they're doing. So this is 35 miles north of Ephesus, this town of Smyrna. It's a center of learning and culture. It was called the Glory of Asia, which Asia Minor or Asia the less is Western Turkey. However, uh, they're known for their wines, but they're also known for major worship of, wait for it, the Roman Emperor. Yes, worship. Not just they don't have signs in their front yard for Obama or Trump or Biden, they're worshiping. The rule was citizens needed to burn a pinch of incense and say the words, Caesar is Lord. You receive a little certificate, go on your way. Some Christians would say, you know what? I'm just going to say it. I don't really mean it give me the certificate. Jesus knows my heart, but it's a compromise. There were Christians that said, there's no way I'm saying those words. Jesus is Lord. And they would be persecuted. Some would be arrested. Some would be killed. So they had the golden street, kind of a main drag there, um, with temples to various other gods, uh, Cybele, C-Y-B-E-L-E, Apollo, uh, Aklopios, Aphrodite, and a huge temple to Zeus, but pagan god worship was kind of coming down in popularity in favor of worshiping the Roman emperor. When my wife and I went to Egypt, we took so many tours where you see ruins of temples to pagan gods That some of them were elaborate. Okay, they're falling apart now. And you know how many people are still worshiping there? None. It just was astounding to me that like this clearly wasn't the real God. He came and he went. The real God is still around kind of thing. People worship some strange things, don't they? Um, So the first and the last, he's claiming to be Yahweh, as I said, and also his eternal character there. So they're worshiping the Roman... Um, emperor. Some are doing it legitimately, for real. Some are just going through the motions. Christians won't even go through the motions if they're true believers. Um, let's see, we already talked about that. Smyrna means bitter. It's the Hebrew word more, M-O-R. M-O-R. Um, it's a derivative of the word for myrrh, M-Y-R-R-H. Do you remember myrrh, gold, frankincense, Myrrh. Myrrh was uh, something that was used in embalming, a really, really fragrant perfume. They don't have refrigeration. Somebody dies. Bodies begin to stink. They just soak it in myrrh to preserve the body, at least for the funeral and what have you, to make it a little more uh, tolerable, if you will. Used for embalming the dead. Interestingly, myrrh, this is the city of Smyrna, same word, myrrh becomes fragrant when it is crushed. Isn't that interesting? When we're crushed under persecution and tribulation and trouble because of our Christian belief, if we allow ourselves to be crushed and not lose faith, we become fragrant. Does that mean you don't have to use deodorant? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in heaven, God goes that that's a beautiful fragrance let's take our two minute break and stretch our aging bodies except for a few people that are here find your seats if you will back there and we'll continue those of you on zoom welcome and did you say amen earlier and wave okay a few of you have screens oh look at my friends in Vanuatu welcome to all of you nice to see you Halfway around the world. What an awesome thing. We may have some people from Nepal that will be joining us. Um, that's another story. Okay. Welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study. Oh, wow. We are back in uh, chapter two of Revelation. Find your seats back there, if you will. Thank you, Gene, for the treats you brought. Um, let's see. Uh let's see. So the, Jesus is being described in verse 8 the one who died and came to life again. It is not a temporary coming to life again. He's conquered death forever. I meant to tell you in verse 8. Look at verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not but are a synagogue of satan pretty amazing thing being said there okay he knows about their afflictions do you ever go through afflictions trouble pain persecution sadness and think does god even know does he he knows does he only know when i pray to him and tell him i'm really going through a hard time or does he know anyway he knows anyway that's comforting to me It's not just for a church. It's for individual Christians as well. So, and he's the first and the last. So he's God. That's how he knows. He knows their afflictions and their, he says, poverty. Now, there's a church called Laodicea that comes later on. They think they're rich, but they're actually poor. These guys, it's the opposite. They're very poor, but he's telling them, you're rich. What's going on in that area is that there is severe persecution going on and confiscation of property. This happened in Jerusalem. That's why there were so many poor saints in Jerusalem, people that had businesses, the property and their business was being confiscated, or nobody would do business with them if they had an inn or they made shoes or they were carpenters or whatever they did. Um, In any case, uh, by the way, King James has blasphemy in verse 9, and it really is a better translation. Um, They are rich in a number of ways, okay? You can't read this in the text, but I'm going to tell you about it. The Apostle John had a protege named Polycarp, just like it sounds, P-O-L-Y-C-A-R-P. Polycarp learned from the Apostle John. He's a church father. He wrote during this second century. He ended up becoming one of the pastors at this church in Smyrna. So no wonder they're rich. They've got one of John's main disciples um, until 155 AD, and he died as a martyr, by the way, as well. Um, So it's tough to earn a living for these people. They're being persecuted but notice it's a there's a, a large hostile community of jews in this town that just hate the christians okay which has led some christians to be anti-semitic which is a anti-jew if you read the bible you should not be anti-jew if your reason is well they killed jesus so did you so did the Romans. Your sin is part of the reason he died. Get over it. Okay. There are um, Jews who believe, and there are Jews who do not believe. These people, this verse says, say that they're Jews and aren't, but they're a synagogue of Satan. Interesting. He, he, the, what's clear is they say they're Jews. There's probably a synagogue in, in, um, Smyrna, okay? So they're going through the motions. They say they're Jews. Maybe they're doing all the sacrifices. However, they can't be because there's no temple, okay? Just as today, ever since 70 AD, the Jews that meet in a synagogue, that practice Judaism, that read the Torah, the Old Testament, God bless them, their religion has been gutted they don't have a high priest they don't have a temple in jerusalem there has not been a single sacrifice since 70 ad we're talking almost 2000 years why is that because jesus christ is our temple the place where we meet god where we pray jesus christ is our high priest hebrews is a book all about what i'm saying here jesus christ is the ultimate passover sacrifice the ultimate passover lamb all that stuff has been superseded by one human being, the Son of God, the Mashiach Nagid, the King Messiah. Um, okay, let's keep rolling here. Um, they say they're Jews and they're not. I want to take a brief detour. I want to take you to a couple of places Romans chapter 2. So from Revelation, take a left. I'll say 15 books. That's a guess right before first Corinthians comes Romans. If you went to Acts or John, you went too far the other way. Romans chapter two, and then Romans chapter nine. I want to talk about this idea of they say they're Jews that they're not. He doesn't mean ethnically they say they're Jewish. If their parents are Jewish, ethnically, ethnically, they're Jews. You with me? Go to Romans chapter two, And look at verses 28 and 29 with me. Verse 28, Paul writing, and he's a Jew, by the way. He's a Pharisee. He knows the Old Testament better than anybody, and he became a Christian. Verse 28, a man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly of the heart. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written law code NIV has. Such a man's praise is not not from men, but from God, the ones that have the true belief in their hearts. Now go to Romans chapter 9, and I'll show you one more thing about people that profess Judaism, and they're not Jews. Most Jews that are alive today are what's called secular Jews. Jews. I have a good friend who used to write for Jay Leno. He lives in Ecuador now. If you said, "Are you Jewish?" he'd say, "Yes." Do you ever read the? No. Do you ever go to synagogue? No. Practice anything? No. Little beanie cap? No. None of that. Uh, yarmulke. Chapter nine of Romans. Look at verse six. It is not as though God's word has failed, had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now, what what kind of double talk is that? Listen, the true Jews to God are Jews, separate category. Gentile means non-Jews. Let's just talk about Jewish people for now. Israel Small country in the Middle East, surrounded by enemies. It's the size of New Jersey. There are more Jews, listen, in New York than there are in Israel. Is that a mind blower? Okay. To God, a Jew today, ever since the cross, is a Jew who recognizes that's our Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's a Jew. For that reason, I said earlier, and I have nothing against Jewish people or the Jewish religion. I'm just saying they, they can't sacrifice. They don't have a high priest. They don't have the temple. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant. They, it's somewhere. There's all kinds of rumors. Ethiopia, the Vatican has it. It's not needed now. Um, because Jesus fulfills all of that stuff. Like I said, the book of Hebrews goes into this in great detail. Um, so these guys are slant. They're Jews. God's people, supposedly, slandering and persecuting God's people, Christians, right? Because they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So he's saying, even though you're poor, you're rich. You guys are rich. They said, well, you don't feel rich in the things that matter. You're rich, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about, where... It ain't all about the money and the zeros after the number or the how big your house is or any of that. It's about being rich in the things that matter, the things that are, listen, eternal, right? We always say in this Bible study that when you see a hearse with a dead body in it, they never have a trailer hitch with a big tractor trailer with all the guy's belongings because you can't take it with you. Everybody that's rich is going to lose it all. Everybody. They'll lose it all when they die, and it'll go to their kids who will waste the money probably. And anyway, or they lose it all anyway when they go to heaven. You don't get to heaven and say, do you know who I am? As if God would care. Do you know the kind of money I have? I started Microsoft. I started Amazon. I started Tesla. God's not impressed. Are you rich in the things of God? What's that? Right? Okay. The little the little trap door drops out. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Uh, we won't go to Philippians three, but that's another verse we could look at about Jews that are um, ethnically not spiritually Jews. Sometimes material wealth can be an obstacle to faith or to Christianity or to God's kingdom. How so? People that are rich constantly think about their riches. Remember, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, where your heart is, Mm -hmm. uh, where your treasure is, sorry, there your heart will be also, right? If your treasure is in heaven, the ultimate treasure, that's where your heart will be. That'll motivate you to do different things. If money is your treasure, that will motivate you to make more money. My dad used to always say, how much is enough? A little more, just a little teeny bit more. Okay, Um, so Let's go back to this church, and um, he knows their afflictions. He knows their poverty. He says they're rich in verse 9. I know about the slanderers, says they're Jews and not. They're a synagogue of Satan. Ouch. Going through the motions, God's not there. In fact, they don't realize it, but it's a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Oh. Did that have to be in there? I don't want this church. Move to the next one. I don't want to be in the church that suffers. Listen, you might be, this might be your lot in the future. We might have to suffer for our faith. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Why is that, Jesus? I tell you, the devil will put some of you, remember synagogue of Satan, the devil will put, will put some of you in prison to test you. Can I get this guy, this gal to renounce their faith in Jesus? Test you like we already talked about. This is an interesting verse. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. What the heck is going on there? Okay. I read a lot of commentaries. There's all kinds of theories. I'll tell you the ones I don't think are right. Some say 10 years is what it means. Prophetic days, years. Some say it means through 10 emperors reigns. Good Lord. That's a lot of time. Okay. Most said the majority opinion, this is a common phrase in Greek for a short, relatively short time. Is it going to be 10 actual 24 hour days? No, not necessarily. He just means a, a short, uh, amount of time. Um, I want you to notice if the devil had his way, what would happen? They'd kill them all. And it wouldn't be 10 days of persecution or prison, would it? What's your point, Joe? Just like Job chapter one, the devil can do what he wants, but with limits. God says this far, no further. Same with Job. Do you remember? The devil says, "Uh, I can, I can hurt this guy. And God says, don't kill him. Do what you want. If if I hurt him, he'll disown you. Remember that? God says, do whatever you want, but you can't kill him. Job comes through. Um, So this test is allowed by God. Could God prevent it? Yes. But then why doesn't he? First Peter one, six to seven, he allows the tests to purify us to burn away the stuff that's no good. So that we our faith grows through the harder times, and I bet if I had a show of hands here, did your faith grow more when everything was perfect or when you went through a hard time? and you, did you pray more when everything was perfect or when you went through a very painful, tough time? God knows what He's doing to make us more like Jesus. Well, Jesus had the glory. Yes, but he came to earth and suffered greatly and had to go through it. Do you remember? And what did he say in the Garden of Gethsemane? If there's any way to get out of this, let's do it. But not my will. Some of you are saying it, but your will be done. We don't understand. When I'm persecuted, when I am suffering for whatever reason, I I try not to say, get me out of this. I try to say, God, God, Whatever you want, need me to learn, help me to learn it quickly. <laughs> really be a fast learner. Um, but I want to learn everything you have for me in this. Don't be afraid about what you're about to suffer. Mm-hmm. The devil's going to put some of you in prison to test you. This could be you or me. It's not out of the realm of possibility. And you'll suffer, suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful keep on keeping on even to the point of death. Isn't that amazing? And I'll give you your, I will give you life as your victor's crown, the crown of life. He's saying they think they can kill you and they can't. It's an oxymoron. It's a paradox. It's a contradiction in terms. Even if they kill you, I'll give you the crown of life. Well, no, I'll be dead. No, I'll give you the crown of life. Do you see the, the point? It's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, there's two kinds of crowns. There's the royalty crown. This is a different Greek word. It's Stephanos. It's a victor's crown. In the Olympic games, they would get woven Greek you know, um, leaves, whoop de doo which a month later would start to look lousy. And a year later, you could barely have it on the mantle anymore, right? Um, a winner's trophy. Um, and so he's saying... This is an incorruptible crown. First Corinthians nine talks about that. James one talks, calls it a crown of life. First Peter one, a crown of glory and second Timothy five, a crown of righteousness. Translation in plain English for simple people like me, it's all worth it. Even if I'm persecuted. Yes. And we're not in America. Come on. My neighbor made fun of me. Kids in school. made. Come on. These people are losing their livelihoods, their homes, their lives, right? It's all worth it. The crown of life. Heaven lasts forever. Persecution lasts for 10 days, shorter time. Um, We already talked about that. And the reason for allowing the tests. Show me someone who says, please, God, don't ever let me be tested or tried or suffer or be persecuted i'll show you a weak christian show me somebody that's been through the battlefield i'll show you somebody that's gets stronger with every battle every time let's see go back to second uh, the second chapter don't be afraid be faithful to, even to the point of death i'll give you your life as a victor's crown there it is again verse 11 whoever has ears Do you have ears? That means this is written to you. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. The first death is physical death. Why are you saying not everybody, but almost everybody dies? Well, Elijah didn't die. Enoch, Old Testament, didn't die, right? Um, Lazarus died twice, if we want to split hairs, right? Jesus resuscitated him. He lived for a number of years he died again. Like, here we go again, right? If you believe in a rapture, as I do, those people that are alive at the time Christ returns won't die. They'll be changed in an instant and go up to meet the Lord. Otherwise, though, the vast, vast, vast majority of human beings live and die. It's a fact of life. We're used to it. We don't like to talk about our own death, but we all know it's true, don't we? And God says, don't get used to that. That wasn't the way I designed it. The Garden of Eden, nobody was going to die. Adam couldn't even stub his toe, I believe. He couldn't get injured, couldn't get sick, couldn't get COVID. There were no masks in the Garden of Eden, right? No quarantining, no sickness, no death, no injury until sin. Now, do you see why sin is such a bad thing? It ruined everything. I mean, this is still a beautiful planet, but it's a fraction of the beauty we're going to see in heaven when Eden is restored. Uh, Praise God. Okay. So there's those words again, whoever has ears. If you're victorious, if you overcome, if you remain faithful to the end, you won't be hurt at all by the second death. Okay. Well, Joe, you defined the first death. What's the second death? Okay. The second death is defined in uh, Revelation 20, twice, and 21 once, and Matthew 10 once. Okay, well, what is it? Well, let's go to Revelation 20. I'll just give you a hint. It's the permanent death. It's the final death. Well, is it death meaning the cessation of life? No. It's worse. Worse than death? Yes. How so? The second death is Revelation 20. Are you there? Say amen. Amen. Verse four, I saw thrones on which were, this is after the tribulation, after the second coming, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. Talk about persecution, martyrs. And because of the word of God, they had not worshiped the beast, Antichrist, or his image, and had not received his mark, 666, on their forehead or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Is that it? No, the eternal state is chapter 21 and 22. We're not here to study that now. That'll be 25 years when we get to this chapter. But anyway, verse five, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed are those, that's you who have, blessed and holy, sorry, are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they'll be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The second death is being sent to hell forever. Uh, It doesn't please me to say this, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Hell is described in various ways. And from a physical universe standpoint, they don't make sense. I'll just tell you. What do you mean? It's outer darkness. Hell is. Okay, it's a dark place. And yet there's flames everywhere. Eternal fire. Well, which is it? You can't have fire in the darkness. I've heard people say it's a black hole, which light doesn't escape from. I don't know. It's a spiritual thing. It is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The tense of those verbs is ongoing. They don't cry for an hour and then they're snuffed out like Jehovah's Witnesses say. Annihilation. The dead are judged, unbelievers, and they're annihilated. I wish that was true. It's not. The good news for you is the human spirit is eternal. The bad news for unbelievers is the human spirit is eternal. And they will spend eternity outside of the presence of God and all things holy forever, because that's what they wanted. Leave me alone, God. I'm good enough on my own. Don't, don't you in, in, in intrude on my life. Outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, flames. Look at, I'm still in Revelation 20. And the devil, verse 10, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast, that's a human being, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, that's his right-hand man, had been thrown. They will be tormented for 10 days. Is that what it says? Day and night forever and ever. Where are we at this time? You got to read 21 and 22, the eternal state. Way better, right? Okay, go back to uh, chapter two again. We still got some time. So, physical death is the first death. For unbelievers, it's scary. For believers, it is nothing more than a doorway opening into eternal glory and bliss where you will see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. You will never, ever get sick or die or be injured or be sad it would be, it'll be absolutely perfect. But what do we do sit on clouds and play harps? And if that's all we did, would that be perfect? Will there be stuff to do? I think there has to be. God doesn't tell us, and I'll tell you why, I think. Paul sees heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, okay, and sees things that he's not permitted to talk about. And another place, he says, that I hasn't seen.